0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Crypto and Grill.
1: crypto and grill it's your favorite crypto warrior here trained in all forms of digital combat and technological wizardry It's crypto dantes and i am here yet again with stig of the pump who is broadcasting live from his mum's basement he recently won star of the day for tidying his room say hello stig
2: you really, really need to stop ousting me like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's just mean. I need time. I need time to think about my answer for these things.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll give
2: you you've a week. Got to remember, you've got to remember, as my other half says, I'm not the funny one.
1: <laughs> you're funny looking that's what you've got going for you so that's we'll start there um we have we have a fantastic guest again today and uh, we're really excited to to have this uh this chap on um and i'm gonna let uh, my co-host here stig introduce him because uh, i think you guys met in paris if i'm not wrong uh, i'm not sure whether you went together um on a on a jaunt that nobody else not knows that. about or whether you met each other there and, and that's where the uh the love affair started who knows but uh uh, yeah, so so Stig, over to you.
2: Uh, yeah, no, we uh, we did meet in Paris. We didn't go together, though. Uh, so we were at, uh, we, I think we mentioned that I was at the OECD blockchain event earlier on this year in Paris, which was really, really interesting. It was interesting to get a different set of perspectives, very much from a policy perspective. And John, who I met very briefly there, uh, was part of a panel which was very much owned by one individual on the panel, which wasn't John. But um, John was there giving some uh, very very interesting perspectives from sort of a wall street perspective on crypto and i know you've done a lot of speaking across the globe at the moment about this so it'd be it'd be really good to continue some of those but um our our podcast is very much focused towards people who are new to the space so we're trying it's more of an educational piece so we may we may start digging into a bit of terminology and stuff just to make sure that we keep it fresh
1: let cool. say hello john john d'agostino here he is. Yeah, thank you
0: very much, and uh, let me just say we, we did not go to Paris together yet. <laughs> so yet, yeah, yeah. yeah. nice. Put ready. some
1: more groundwork in, Stig. Oh, so
0: let's let's be open-minded, uh, <laughs> um, So, uh, yeah, guys, thanks for having me. This this was great. Yeah, OECD uh, conference was um was a wonderful invitation, really fantastic opportunity. I met some I met some really impressive people there. Uh, I think, as I mentioned to you, I, I define myself as a cynical enthusiast uh, around the, the sector. Um, and so when you um, go there and you meet people who are genuinely trying to improve the world using uh, blockchain tech uh, and are um, uh, moving in that direction uh, really honestly and, uh, and passionately, it kind of reinvigorates your interest, uh, at least it reinvigorates my interest in, uh, in the sector. Mm. And, and so
2: uh, give us a bit of a background about who you are and sort of where you've come from, because um, it'd be interesting to see where, how you've ended up kind of in the position that you are. So where you started out, where you went to university, what your early career looked sure. like, just to give us a little bit of who John is.
0: Sure. Um, so I was born in Brooklyn, New York, went to a very um, uh, interesting little bucolic uh, college called Williams College, uh, nestled in the Berkshire Mountains, uh, as opposite from Manhattan as you can possibly get. That was that was the goal. Uh, while I was there, I spent a year abroad studying at Oxford, uh, Exeter College. Phenomenal time to be an American abroad at Oxford. So, so first of all, everyone loved Americans back then. That was it was it was really really fun. Uh, secondly, there was a movie called Oxford Blues that came out a few years before I got there about an American who rode for Oxford. Now, I didn't row for Oxford; I rode for Exeter. Um, but that was a great coincidence for me. I mean, that was it was like the number one movie. Um, friends was really popular. I'm an Italian from Brooklyn, so I was Joey Tribbiani. <laughs> it was an amazing time. I had tons of friends, had loads of laughs. Um, became a complete Anglophile. Uh, came back to the U.S. Uh, went to Harvard Business School. Um, mm-hmm. Spent a little bit of time studying abroad. I was working abroad. I lived in London for a bit. Lived in Dubai. Lived in Moscow. Um, and then I started working. I, I got um, b- before business school, and then after business school. I got this very interesting odd offer. You know, typically Harvard Business School graduates, you, know, you, you, you study, you work, and you go work for Goldman Sachs and try to make lots of money and become a, a parasite on the, uh, on the global economy. Um, and uh, right when I graduated, and I was about to take a job for a big investment bank, I met this really uh, fascinating individual who was chairman of the New York Mercantile Exchange. I had won a fellowship. Uh, I, my, my Harvard was paid for largely by this organization. Um, and so I was thanking them. Uh, at, at their annual dinner. And this gentleman was being named as man of the year and this phenomenal guy just you know, mm-hmm. that sat there just with my girlfriend now wife and said, like, I, I want to be him someday. Mm-hmm. And uh, afterwards, after my little speech, he had sent over one of his associates and uh, to ask me to come sit down next to him basically said what do you do for what do you do and i said well i'm starting i just graduated i'm starting an investment bank in a few weeks and he said no no no. you work for me forget about all that stuff and, um, literally, <laughs> so, literally, so it is literally like it was in a movie <laughs> well, they, they wrote about there's actually a new york times best-selling book about it so um, wow. And, uh, oh, wow. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know if you knew that, so uh, we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit. But anyway, so, okay, so cool. he, he, um, he literally said that to me. And then he said goodbye, and he walked off he, with his entourage of people. And, um, you know, I, I kind of wrestled with the decision. a pretty famous guy, and uh, wrestled with the decision. And uh, so what I did was uh, the morning he said to show up, I showed up at 6 a.m., and I left, him, I left a note at, uh, at the office, his office, and said, I, I showed up. Now you have to you know, make me a real offer because I, I did not have any money and I need to go to work. And you know, this was this was like an f- interesting uh, interaction. But I, I actually need an offer. So didn't hear anything for months. Thought I blew my blew my shot. And then uh, this is a long time ago. But I remember it was like a Tuesday night and my phone rang at like 1030 p.m. And it was his assistant. And they said, be, be at this restaurant in, in a half hour. And I, it, was, it was ridiculous. It was 11 p.m. I ran down to the restaurant. He's there with sort of luminaries of Wall Street. And he kind of laughed and said, you know, it was, that was a cute trick with a note. Um, and we sat down in a 15-minute conversation. How much do you make? You know, what do you do? What do you want to do? All right, I'll match your salary. You know, no, no, no guarantee bonus. We'll see what happens. You start in two weeks. And uh, I gave it a shot. And I went from being this... Um, you know, Harvard Business School graduates think that we're going to rule the world from from month one, and I was basically uh, getting his laundry. Um, but I was also getting his laundry. I was also working on these amazing deals he was structuring. Like, again, I don't want to get into uh, specific names, but these were kind of world class deals that I, I had no business being a part of. I knew nothing, graduating from HBS, uh, but just got to be around him and got to be around uh, this uh, uh, the, the nineX New York Mercantile Exchange, which which is a really, you know, it's not the traditional way that, that business school uh, graduates learn about uh, business. They, they go work for an investment bank, they take a boot camp, whatever. Um, but, but in a way, exchanges are the sort of epicenters of capitalism. So that's where, that's where capital formation occurs. That's where risk transfer occurs. So, um, and I was very lucky to, to, to learn in, at the end of open outcry. And that, that was important for two reasons. One is, is open outcry is and i see this now with electronic trading it's, it's the human manifestation of electronic trading it's all the all the idiosyncrasies electronic trading all the market issues all the market structure issues open out is a great place to study them because you can see it happening it's like, a, it's like a, a rat lab you can actually stand up on a stage and watch 900 people um pervert capitalism <laughs> but but also <laughs> I don't mean that in a negative way. I, I wouldn't get into this, but my, my view is that markets are inherently inefficient because people are inherently inefficient. Um, they, they, were, they weren't bad people, but they were just self-interested. So, but you mm-hmm. can study it and you can watch it um, the way you would observe a scientific experiment. Uh, it's much harder with electronic trading uh, because you can obscure things more easily. Um, mm-hmm. but, but so I watched that. And then the second reason is um, uh, I got to watch a massive transition a paradigm shift, which I think we're going through now again, um, from open outcry trading to electronic trading. Um, and now we're seeing that next. So I've, I've seen that happen. I've seen what happens when you uh, rush it prematurely. I've seen what happens when you stall it uh, uh, too long. Um, I, know, I understand the friction involved. And so now it's really interesting. I, I feel fortunate in, my, in one lifetime to see you know, two big paradigm shifts happening in, uh, in, in, in capital markets.
1: It's interesting. You mentioned that because uh, we we spoke um, to Pomp a few episodes ago. Actually, uh, I don't know whether you know Anthony Pompliano, but uh, I've heard he, of
0: the name. Yeah, on yeah, he
1: speaks quite a lot on yeah. uh, on Twitter, and his his view is that you know, look, we're moving to a place in the world now where uh, we need to trust the machines more. And machines are already taking over because you know, humans are subject to emotion, bias, and greed, and you don't have that same uh, challenge with uh, with machines and, and automated trading. You put a lot of <laughs> in yes. and... Uh, you, you get a more until the code until
0: the code being written by itself I think you do quite frankly and, mm-hmm. and, and empirical evidence I point to the flash crashes
1: yeah uh, mm-hmm. flash
0: crashes were largely caused by algo trading uh, which mm-hmm. is automated trading but written by human beings so I, I, I think he I think from a futurist perspective he's right and eventually when AI starts writing its own code although I think we'll have a whole nother set of problems because you're gonna have the synchronicity a synchronizing of, of, of mission and synchronizing of uh, yeah if you if you if you take three three guys or three women with exactly the same background, same training, you know, same family situation, economic situation, and you, and you put them in a market and watch them take risk. They generally start to take risk in the same way because they have the same background. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if code's going to be that much different. So I think it's going to be better. Don't get me wrong. We, we should clearly move in that direction. Um, I don't buy into this utopian ideal, um, that once we trust the machines, Everything will be fine because we've already you know, 65, 85 percent, close to 70 percent. Sorry, of order of order activity in capital mm-hmm. markets now is algorithmic trading, where humans are largely not involved, and it's bad. It's messed <laughs> up. So, um, so I think he's right. But but like, like a lot of these predictions, I think he's right in a hundred years. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I think uh, people tend to dramatically underestimate the amount of time it gets um, to evolve to truly evolve. But, yeah. um, but mm-hmm. I've been wrong before.
1: Okay, so, we, um, so there was a really good in, intro to who you are, and, and we, we got the, um, the episode of Suits version of your life there, uh, which sounds very uh, <laughs> very uh, set and made for TV. Um, where, so, so, so picking up from that and into episode two, how do you get to where you are now, um, and what's your, what's your current role, sure. and I guess your day-to-day focus at DMS um, and DMS Governance, sure. and what do they do? Um, be good to let the listeners know yeah. kind of how they fit into everything and, and what your role is there.
0: So I, I, was, I always love these questions about where I am because uh, it, it makes you start feeling very self-conscious about, you know, maybe I, I always had this funny, like there's so many more important people than me and so many better people than me that should be, that should be you know, giving their life story. But, but anyway, so, so my situation is that whatever moderate success I've managed to achieve in life is largely the result of just blind luck because uh, I was working at the NIMX doing really cool stuff. It was interesting, but kind of nothing that would take, get anyone's attention. And then one day, um, Sheikh Mohammed's office, uh, in Dubai calls and says, Uh, we think you should open up an exchange in Dubai. We want to become the pricing center for commodities in the Middle East. And uh, the chairman was a smart enough man to think, you know, this is never going to fly in a million years here. But, you know, this is a a prestigious invitation. So, I mean, literally, he looked out the door, was the only one working at like 8.30 p.m. And he said, all right, (laughs) guess what, kid, you get to go to Dubai. Um, I'm truncating this for the purposes of your podcast. But fast forward three years (laughs) later. Um, I was able to uh, lead and structure the uh, deal that created the first Middle Eastern derivatives exchange. Um, that was turned into a New York Times best-selling book, um, and then suddenly, because I'm the subject of a best-selling book, uh, I'm qualified to speak on almost anything. It's uh, it's amazing. Um, so I started getting invited, you know, and then just you know that that kind of. It's like if you're lucky enough to be born into a, into a rich family, you get to go to good schools, and then unless you're an idiot, you get around good opportunities, and then you make something of it. So I got to be around interesting opportunities because I had this uh, two seconds of of fame in the business world. And, um, and then Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, he wrote a book, and for some bizarre reason, he made me a small chapter in the book, even though I never met him. So then, like again, it, like it was really amazing. So everybody's like, "Oh, you must be brilliant." I'm like, "No, I'm actually not brilliant at all. <laughs> um, I just managed to find myself in the right place on these interesting projects." So, so that led to a, a pretty interesting career on the buy side in the hedge fund world. Mm. Um, I was doing some cool. It, oh, every once in a while, I get to do some cool projects. So, when the Hong Kong Exchange was buying the London Metals Exchange, um, my name got tossed around, and suddenly my phone rang and. And they said, hey, we want you to fly out to Hong Kong for, for two months and uh, help us with this transaction. So, mm-hmm. you know, I had a pretty normal Wall Street career in the hedge fund space, and then it would be speckled with these kind of really cool opportunities um, because of this exposure. And mm-hmm. um, and then that led to uh, a really really bad situation where I worked for a for a fund that blew up catastrophically, um, awfully, uh, cover of the New York Times level type stuff. And. Uh, I was still fairly young. I was I was junior. Mm-hmm. I was I wasn't one of the uh, principals, uh, the uh, one of the traders. But um, I was one of the few people who um, understood the portfolio who stuck around, uh, who didn't just leave. So I got kind of left helping with that dissolution. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an amazing experience because like, I, I, I lost everything. I, I lost all my, my investments. Um, you know, it, was a, it was a horrible, catastrophic blowup. It wasn't, unfortunately you know, for me, there wasn't any malfeasance. It wasn't anything, you know, it was just bad. It was just bad trading decisions. It just went the wrong way. But I, I, I went, that took almost a year because of the, the highly complex nature of the portfolio. Um, during that time, you kind of figure out who is, um, who respects you for your brand because your brand gets tarnished. When even if it's mm-hmm. not, even if it's not criminal, it's being attached to failure tarnishes. This isn't Silicon Valley where failure is fetishized. This is Wall Street where failure is punished. So, um, <laughs> you know, people like where you know, you you, you fail. you were part of a massive failure. So so, and then you find out sort of who respects you for your actual ability. So um, when that was over, when that process was over, um, I, I was fortunate enough that actually several of my investors who had lost you know, tremendous amounts of money. Um, were happy with how I handled that process, so they hired me. Um, ironically, to look at their portfolios to see if there were other potential blowups. Who, who better to see if there's a potential blowup than someone in the in the, in the belly of the of the beast? Um, that led to a little kind of um, you know consulting business I ran. Um, that caught the attention of some very large uh, large um, uh, players uh, in the industry. And then, you know, boom, I'm right back kind of up there with a very big brand named uh, fund. Uh, fast forward a few years later, um, I'm getting a little bit antsy. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my life. One of the board members who oversaw the fund that I was at that blew up reached out to me and basically said, look, you know, I thought you handled yourself very well. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we like people who have been through hard times, who have proven their character. Uh, we think there's an opportunity um, for uh, for you to build a practice where you provide um, active board membership. So uh, you become a board member um, uh, for asset management firms that is really actively involved, who understands the portfolio, who in- mm-hmm. integrates with management very well. Um, you know, there's two styles of governance. There, there's you know true independent sort of passive governance, and then there's um, uh, more active governance. And, and both can work. Both it depends on the context. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my style is, is much more active. So uh, I tend to join boards and provide compliance governance services to firms that want to see me as a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps me do my job better. It helps me catch something if something's going wrong. And it's also to some degree self-fulfilling. You, 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 don't, you don't put me on your board if you're trying to hide something because mm-hmm. I'm going to find it. Um, I, I'm, it's, I'm the anti Theranos mm-hmm. board, if you will. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's how I wound, up, I wound up where I am because of colossal failure um but it's interesting you say that because
1: you you hear that time and time again through from entrepreneurs Mm. uh people that have faced challenges you know quite often it's um it's people that have faced uh uh, difficulties in in sort of education people with dyslexia often find um you know a different way around problems and they they take that and and make a real success about it because they can't follow necessarily the path that's given to you through education you know i think richard branson's in the uk a great example of that there's a couple of other people on the dragon's den episode that i Think mm. you know may have been through something like that, and I, I always find um, you know watching people and hearing their stories really interesting because either there's some form of difficulty or failure or challenge mm. that that people have overcome where they've learned how to mitigate risk, how to how to take risk, and how to manage themselves, yeah. like you said there, that really sets them apart from people that have just been quite steady and stable throughout mm. their life. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting you say that. So
0: yeah. can I say one thing about? Way, I, I love what you just said, but I, w- I want to say because you, you mentioned the word success and. Whenever I hear these podcasts and these interviews with people, um, there's always this presumption that the person on the other end is like this you know, fantastically rich individual. Because unfortunately, mm-hmm. we, we we associate success with, with wealth, and I always I always find that fascinating because um, you know I, I I chose a path in life where I actually did not pursue great wealth. I, I I you know could have gone the investment banking path. You know for me, success has been I've, I've been able to carve out a career. Where look, it's all relative, right? I'm very, very fortunate. I'm incredibly fortunate. I live in New York City. I have a a, amazing wife. Have two great kids. I can I can Mm -hmm. keep us all, you know, clothed and housed. Um, But but I chose a career and I chose a life where I can be be at home on a Friday right now, doing a podcast, helping my wife, you know, pack the car. Um, And I've I made sacrifices for that, at least relative to my post-Harvard Business School career path. And and I'm not giving a, it's like a what was me type thing, but I do think it's important, because especially for, for, for women. I, I remember Meg Whitman, uh, who was the CEO of eBay, she came to Harvard Business School and, and she had a really powerful, impactful message that she basically said, this is for the women, but the men can stay. And she said, you know, it's unfair that you have all this pressure, but you have to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, a CEO, and um, the reality is everybody makes choices. Everybody makes uh, sacrifices, concessions, you value what's more important. And so, especially with all this kind of like stuff going on with blockchain and all this incredible wealth being created, um, I hope people understand that that you can you can have an amazing, satisfying, wonderful career and be considered very successful without necessarily you know uh, mooning as uh, as yeah. the kids as the kids say.
1: <laughs> No, it's really, really wise words, and I'd agree with that. Agreed. I think you know um, once you get sort of uh, a certain point in your career, actually, I think su- success is self-defined. It's actually yes. do you want to just dedicate all the time in the world that you have to to working and trying to earn as much money as you can maybe some people do and that's their thing but actually it's it's awesome, for yeah. other people's success is finding a job that they can do three four days a week um personal interests and and con- perhaps their own consultancy project or or, or spare time mm-hmm. and family time and bringing yeah. it all together and I think you've got to work hard to define what that success um is and work towards it and you know I completely agree with it uh, and I
2: definitely I definitely think that that is becoming more and more prevalent today so Society as well. There's definitely uh, success is definitely a very fluid concept these days. Whereas I think 10, 15 years ago, success was actually a pretty hard-nosed, defined thing. Um, so it's interesting to see how that's how that's changing. Um, with the, one of the questions that I'm really, really keen to get under then is how, based on all of that, have you ended up in the position that you have been? In? And also talking about uh, cryptocurrencies, how you have ended up there, what DMS does in that space? Because for, from my angle. What I understand of what a DMS would be doing is actually more tailored towards traditional financing or uh, traditional funds. So it'd be really interesting to yep. see how, how you've got involved in that
0: space. Sure. So again, I say I got involved in crypto because of colossal failure. Um. Uh, I, I won't name names, but but about eight years ago, I uh, the board, the board of a of a pretty famous crypto company, uh, which at the time was not a crypto company. Uh, asked me to um, look at this investment because it was a um, a broker dealer that was kind of trying to figure out what it wanted to be when it grew up, uh, and I went and I spent time with the with the CEO, and it was sort of um it was failing in its current in its 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 current mission, and we talked about different options for the firm, and 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 you know one of the options was to kind of pivot into into digital assets, and I just remember thinking oh my God, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Like, what, what, what earth are you talking about? And it wasn't, and it was odd because I had just come from this kind of big, you know, I was known as the guy who helped, you know, uh, digitize trading at the night, you know, and, and so there was an unlikely reaction from someone like me, but I just, you know, my, my skepticism was based around, um, you know, a lot of the, the common criticism, uh, you know, lack of intrinsic value, um, you know, the early community was even worse than the community now in terms of the, you um, You know, it exhibited what I always found ironic was the the asset class was a revolution, protesting against the excesses of Wall Street, but exhibited some of the worst characteristics of Wall Street in terms of uh, (laughs) the pump and dump mentality. So, so I just I just was like, you know, this is I don't get it, and um, I felt the same way about crowdfunding. I was like, why on earth would anyone, who the hell is gonna uh, finance a startup and take all that risk and not get debt or equity return? That's (laughs) ridiculous. And I was so wrong and I was so wrong because I didn't recognize the community of people um, that wait online for the iPhone six weeks in advance. Mm-hmm. that there's people in the world who have a different set of values than I do, who, mm-hmm. who are educated differently or think differently. And, and they don't, they, I've been, I've been somewhat um, uh, uh, hamstrung by my, my training. I, I have a hard time associating value with anything other than debt or equity. So mm-hmm. I was dead wrong about crowdfunding. Um, and then I was dead wrong about digital assets. And, and while I still have significant reservations, um, if you're not fascinated by stuff that you're, so, that you're wrong about, something's, something's messed up with your character. So, so that's what kind of got me involved. I, I, was, I was dying to figure out why was I so wrong about this? Why, why did I miss this? Um, mm-hmm. That led to, um, and I'm fortunate enough to, to uh, occasionally lecture at MIT. Um, and uh, so I basically cut a deal with MIT where I said, I'll keep, I'll keep giving you free Um, lecturing, but you have to, uh, you got to get me in touch with the geeks. I want to get to know the really smart people. And they put me in touch with the Media Lab and the Connection Sciences Lab. I kind of deal with them that said, look, I'll be your perspective um, from a a practical business perspective when you write your white papers on things that fintech that impacts capital markets. And that got me into that world. So I was able to kind of really immerse myself in the research, um, meet some of the world's leading technologists who are thinking about these issues. Um And then that helped me build up reputation around digital assets. Uh, I got the phone call from Polychain to be on their board. They're obviously mm-hmm. a very respected uh, entity. Um, when I started working with Polychain, I um, was nervous about how the industry wasn't consolidating around best practice. So mm-hmm. I started just a phone call. It was me and a couple of big auditing firms. That grew very quickly. Now I have 500 of the largest uh, firms in the world, audit tax legal. And I, I take the best practices we create, and I bring them back to regulators. So I've become this sort of um, uh, so the word you could say, I should say thought leader to mm-hmm. make myself feel good. I'm really an errand boy. I'm a messenger boy <laughs> uh, in between really smart people and regulators. Um, and that's how I kind of carved out my 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 place here. Um, it, it's it's you know I think I think the firms that hire me appreciate my cynical enthusiasm. They want, they want that on the board because you can't have, you can't have an environment of fanboys mm-hmm. that, that breeds. Um, you know, we, we, we did this before. And 10 years ago, we fetishized um, quantitative analytics and financial structure. And the math, the mathematician guru who was creating the complex derivative, you couldn't look him in the eye. He, he was just a God.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If we do that again with coders, we will, we will have a, a financial crisis CDS levered debacle again. We, you, you have to trust in the in, ingenious, but you have to also have the ability to question it. Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, you, sa- you said something there, which is uh, cynical enthusiasm. Uh, and it's very, very clear that you are very, very ent- enthusiastic about it on one side, but then also very cynical about it on the other. Can you Could you possibly explain a little bit around what makes you cynical about it and then also what you're enthusiastic about?
0: Sure. The, the cynical side is easy. The cynical side, um, you know, again, I'll split between you know, blockchain. That and you cannot split blockchain and digital assets. They're they're interlinked. But but you know we'll talk about per, you know, permission versus public. But um, so when I talk about you know I say, when I say digital assets, uh, cryptocurrencies, I'm talking about on a standalone basis those those assets as uh, having speculative value. Um, you know, look. My, my two big problems with the, with, with my two big areas of cynicism are, one, um, this idea that um, everything should be tokenized. So so mass tokenization, because because I've seen this before. There was, a, there was an attempt to futurize everything 10 years ago. I always had a strategy of the futures market. I sat there and got all the pitches. We're going to futurize everything. We're going to futurize uh, uh, NFL players' careers. We're going to futurize CEOs' careers. Mm-hmm. We're going to futurize all these commodity instruments. And it was the same exact sales pitch. We're going to, we're going to fragment, fragment the market, make it reduce friction, um, allow people to trade more easily. Everything will become liquid. Everything isn't supposed to be liquid. People mm-hmm. don't want to buy everything. So decreasing the friction of a transaction only helps when there's embedded um, buy sell interest. If if people want to buy and sell something, but but there's too wide of a bid ask spread, market makers mm-hmm. do well. If people want to buy and sell something, um, and the process for buying is too complex, um, electronic uh, digitization and decreasing friction works well. If nobody wants to buy your shitty product, they're not going to suddenly want to buy it because you make it easier to buy. So, so this notion that everything should be tokenized, I just I find it I find it disingenuous. Um, yep. So now, certain things should be tokenized. I absolutely agree. I bought a co-op in New York City this year. Buying a co-op. Is, is, is like a proctological exam from an NBA basketball player. It's, it's a <laughs> horrifying experience. Um, so co-op, co-op is a flat where you're not really buying the, the, the physical property, you're buying shares in a corporation. And it's, it's notable because the, uh, the the board of directors of the co-op, who are the tenants, the, the landowners, uh, the shareholders, um, they, they make it really, really hard to buy this thing. You have to provide tons of financial information. It's no one outside of the U.S. could possibly imagine how bad it is. It's awful. But billions of dollars transact every year because people want to buy co-ops. So, so if you make the co-op buying process a lot easier and quicker and more efficient, you will accelerate liquidity because there's embedded latent buy-sell interest. If if you know my, my old pair of socks, it doesn't matter how frictionless I make the transaction, you don't want to buy them. So, so again, I find this very disingenuous. We should tokenize everything. Tokenize things that are already liquid. Tokenize the U.S. dollar. Mm. That, that's that's just moronic. And 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 so and I, when when I'm faced with people who, who suggest that, I think either they're trying to defraud people, or um they're 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 so naive that it's um and they don't want to they don't want to understand kind of why there are challenges to that issue. So so the tokenizing everything uh the thing makes me very uh, disingenuous. Um I, I'm less I'm less cynical about intrinsic about um Bitcoin as a store of value. Um, and I've always said this from the beginning. I, I think I think it's um, uh, I, I think there are better digital assets to be stores of value, but I also think that um, my daughter, who's five, will have a digital store of value when she's my age. So why not Bitcoin? There, there's no there's reason it can't be Bitcoin. Um, uh, but um, uh, so so I don't have a problem with it as a store of value. I have a big problem with people who think it's going to be a, a viable medium of exchange uh, anytime in the near future. And I just find that their arguments ignore. It's like it's like arguing with a with a climate change denier. Like it's just you know the, the facts are there, the evidence is there, the empirical evidence is there. Um, uh, I, I I find most of their arguments very disingenuous. So so the tokenization of everything, which includes you know the vast majority of ICOs, um, I'm very cynical about. Um, uh, less, increasingly less cynical of Bitcoin as a store of value, um, uh, because it, it's earning its stripes. It's actually remarkably resilient. You have a, you have a a, a concentration Problem with Chinese tail, potential manipulation issues, but uh, but Wall, Wall Street itself is being disingenuous if it doesn't acknowledge that a lot of the stuff that we trade has similar problems. Um, you know, there's a yeah. lot of instruments I helped create, uh, derivative <laughs> instruments at the NYMEX that are wackier than Bitcoin. So yeah. um, so I don't have an issue with Bitcoin as a store of value, um, but I do have an issue with folks who believe. Again, it's you know, it's 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 one thing to say we'll have autonomous driving um, at some mm-hmm. point. We will. There's no question. Um, it's yeah. another to say, give my company a billion-dollar valuation because it's coming in two years. Mm-hmm. That's disingenuous. So, yeah. so I just want to
1: protect it. My my job is to protect investors. Sure. Um. So where do you- Eventually. So go ahead. No, go so please. so no, really interesting view. So where so do you good. think we we are then uh, at the moment then? Um, so in terms of you know crypto is an emerging My is trying to break in. So she's welcome. She's welcome. It's a shame
0: this isn't on video because I can have one of those moments. Remember the guy who got became famous the, because the we've, <laughs>
1: yeah. hey, look, that's so about
0: to happen by the
1: way. So. The software records um, the video, we just don't release it. So uh... <laughs> Where do you, so where do you think we are then today? Um, because there's there's some people that believe crypto is an emergent asset class. Um, there are people that think it's just going to go to zero, um, and there are people that think you know Bitcoin is is the future of everything, the future of money, the future store of yeah. value. So yeah. um, you know it's, it's a really broad spectrum of where we are. I'm really interested yeah. to see what you think from an insider's point of view on Wall Street on how traditional um, institutions and and people like yourself actually view the asset class or the crypto space as a whole and Bitcoin as as something that might still be here in in 10, 15, 20 years um, and uh, and how they're kind of thinking about it?
0: So so full disclosure, Nuriel Rabini is a good friend of mine. Uh, We Mm -hmm. recently um, debated each other at Carnegie Hall and it wasn't really good. I'm, I'm on a scale of zero to five, you know, zero being Muriel, five being like a Brock Pierce type evangelist guy, you know, I'm I'm about a two and a half to you know two and a half, and so 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 this is where Nuriel and I differ. Um, I'm increasingly confident that cryptocurrencies um, will be here in in five or ten years, um, and my confidence is not necessarily. A stamp of approval. I, I still would not advise my mother to invest in digital assets. Um, maybe uh, you know, with some Vegas money, put two percent into an index, uh, the the the, block, the uh, Bloomberg index, just for just for, as you Brits would say, shits and giggles. Um, but, um, <laughs> but as a uh, but as a serious, uh, I, I, I wouldn't advise the average retail person. I, I I absolutely agree with the SEC that it's not ready for ETF in retail. Again, I find the argument that it is disingenuous. I feel the same way about derivatives and other complex instruments, we don't just launch it on complex stuff on retail day one, or or we shouldn't, let's say. So again, if this is supposed to be a revolution against the evils of Wall Street, don't replicate the biggest evils, which is to push complex, volatile things onto unsophisticated retail investors. That being said, um, it's kind of like Twitter. I don't understand why the hell it exists. I think it's the stupidest thing in the world, but it's become so embedded in our culture, it's hard to see it going away anytime soon. Um, Digital assets are going to be here because certain permissioned blockchain companies will succeed. And so by definition, there'll be digital assets around. Now, whether those will become good stores of value, I think it's unlikely. It's not going to be just one. It's not going to be just Bitcoin. It'll be an oligopoly. Um, And whether whether it's the existing ones or new ones that haven't been created yet, I have no idea. But every day I'm getting more convinced that this is hanging around. Now, I, I don't know yet if it's going to be a significant... Um, asset class you know it could stay marginalized like commodity derivatives or, or there's lots of other asset classes my other my one frustration too with, with with when you talk to people who are evangelists about blockchain um they make a lot of really good points they talk about you know uh oh we, we thought we wouldn't be streaming video and then compression rates went down and, and they're right but they always point to tech that worked mm-hmm. there's a lot more tech that didn't work right they never talk about all the ideas that failed so again that's why i find it it's We're betting on, you know, for quantum computing, for blockchain, you have to grudgingly acknowledge it's not ready to scale yet. You're betting on not just normal technical innovation. You're betting on real kind of paradigm shifts. And those Mm -hmm. certainly happen. There's no question they happen. Betting against innovation is a stupid, stupid thing. But I just, again, I find, I find, and it really comes down to just pedantic valuations, right? Right? Will we be driving electric cars in 30 years? Should Tesla be worth as much as it is? Absolutely Mm -hmm. not. Um, right now. So that may, that's maybe my sort of um, old school traditional Wall Street mentality. So that's where my this doesn't come from. It's not, it's not about the optimism of blockchain or the no mm-hmm. digital assets should play a role in capital markets. I, I disagree with Nuriel on that. Um, I think Bitcoin has two phenomenal use cases. One is a store of value for anyone who's subject to government tyranny. Um, mm-hmm. And we're very spoiled in, in the US and the UK. You know, as much, whatever you think about our governments, it's rare for them to knock down the door and take all your stuff. There's lots of people in the world who have that problem. It doesn't take that many wealthy people to decide something has value for it to have value. How many people yeah. can buy a Picasso? A couple yeah. thousand. Yeah. Uh a hundred thousand dollar bottle of wine, a Stradivarius. So, so I think Nairal's wrong on that. Um, but um, I think he's dead right on a lot of his other uh, criticisms. So let me stop there.
1: Perfect. No, no, that was really good. Thank you.
2: <laughs> no, it's really in- it's really interesting. But the thing that the thing that I keep on coming back to is uh, over what period of time, and is that actually going to be a period of time? Because yeah. it's still it's still very much in, it's still very, a very much in its infancy, but also could pl- completely go the opposite way or just like not grow from here. We could end up in stagnation of an asset class, and this we've actually found the true value of that asset class at this point in time. Uh, lots of people, pretty much everyone, think that's unlikely. It's then what happens to it as an asset class over time, and what that time period looks like. That I guess, well, is the million dollar question Well, the million dollar Bitcoin
0: yeah but i think it's a likely i think it's a likely it stagnates right now because it doesn't have the luxury of stagnation what i mean by that is so much money has been poured in at such high valuations if it doesn't perform it's going to be you know pushed to the pushed back for a very long time so if it had grown more kind of quietly it could have had the luxury of stagnation um but if we don't have a lightning network if we don't have um uh, low latency applications uh, uh blockchain applications um, in the next couple of years, everyone's going to start saying, "Well, what the hell's going on?" And and all these blockchain companies will go to zero. Um, we're going to have some wins. There's no question. Um, mm-hmm. I also think the folks who are trying to do, like the folks I met at the OECD, who are just amazing, who are doing the most incredibly wonderful um, uh, work on um, uh, child uh, child trafficking, digital identity. Okay. Um, those are those problems are not technological problems, right? right. Yeah. Look, the, the one, the most exciting thing for me about blockchain is getting systems to speak to each other um, in mm-hmm. a safe, encrypted manner, right? That when I talk to my friends, who know, way more about me than technology. They go, John, that that is the holy grail, right? If you can. Mm-hmm. But the reason that systems don't talk to each other is as much social, cultural, and um, political as it is technical. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so just because you have a system that can talk to each other doesn't mean every company and every player is going to embrace it. If governments going to embrace it, so. So you know these guys trying to solve these big problems. God, I wish them success. But I hope I hope that when they see how much longer it's going to take than they think, mm. I hope the investment community doesn't just get tired and move on and pull funding. Yeah, it's uh, and that for me that's the thing
2: that I'm definitely so uh, the most passionate, and hence why I was in Paris. Is that I'm most passionate about the technology is is less around the excitement and interest around it as an asset class, and more what what the technology could do to the ecosystem that we live in to remove some of those pain points or to remove some of the pain points specifically around integrating different systems. Um, and that, for me, is the bit that the technology is only really starting out on and the bit that will actually drive most social benefit opposed to commercial benefits.
0: Without, um, without question. But that's a, that to me is a social problem, not a, um, uh, a social and political problem uh, and, yeah. and, a, and a competitive corporate competitive problem, not necessarily a technical
1: Problem.
0: Um, Okay. agree. Legacy systems aside, um, the the reason the reason that things that systems don't speak to each other um, is not because the the CTOs don't know how to make that happen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, We've skirted a couple of uh, times around uh, your views on adoption and and perhaps where the crypto space in general uh, might go and what Bitcoin um, what role Bitcoin might play. Keen to get your views on the current state of the, the economy in the world today, um, and perhaps um, what you think, if anything, Bitcoin could do as a store of value, or whether you actually think it's just so tightly tied, and people are going to flee if there is a crash coming that people keep discussing. Maybe there's something coming around the corner that actually yep. look, Bitcoin, all it is, is just a risky asset, and people are going to seek uh, flee that and seek ha- safe havens, and this uh, this fleeing into Bitcoin to to pump it to the moon is just not going to. To happen. So, um, but if we, if we take that in stages, you're really keen to get your, your more traditional view on, on the state of the world today.
0: So, it's interesting, you know, I, I would say, I say my, my opinions changed somewhat between now and a couple of weeks ago, um, and that's because uh, what's happening with Tether, um, I expected to have a, a damaging effect on Bitcoin price, but actually, you've seen a movement into uh, Bitcoin now. There's theories that that's manipulative, but, but let's just put that as conspiracy. I don't know if that's true. Let's just assume that there was a genuine. Uh, flight to quality. That Bitcoin was perceived as um, as uh, as quality in that uh, in that in that panic. So um, mm-hmm. you know, that's an interesting sign. Again, b- because of my mistake on crowdfunding, I'm I- I'm not going to go to Bitcoin if if and when we hit a recession. That's not going to be my safe haven. But but I'm not representative of an increasingly larger number of people in this world who mistrust central banks. So um, I'm, I'm trying to be very open-minded about what percentage are going to think of Bitcoin as a safe as a as a safe haven. Um, I don't want to speculate on that. I have no idea. But 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 I do think I do think if you have incre- increasing institutionalization, if you are able to um, remove some of the concentration. Uh, geographic concentration uh, of, of Bitcoin, if you're able to open the OTC markets and have more transparency, um, if there is more regulation by the SECs, to start to, if the exchanges, first of all, they're not exchanges, they're marketplaces. None of them are licensed exchanges. Very frustrating when people call them exchanges. If they become fully regulated and price discovery becomes, if everything gets a little bit more sane um, by the time we hit the next recession, call it 2020, you know, 2022, um, then, then yeah, th- th- I think it actually could be A a moderate form of of capital preservation, Um, Mm -hmm. but but I don't want to speculate on that because I just I just I I, I don't know. I I won't use it for that purpose. Um, I'll again I'll use it for having you know one or two percent position just for just quite frankly for fun. um, Mm -hmm. Um, But but again I want to there's there's hopefully people listening to this who are from Wall Street who are cynical keep in mind there's, there's there's a lot more of them than there are of us. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we have to start understanding that and, 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 and stop looking down on people because they perceive value differently from the way I perceive it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and if you, we,
2: you um, are aware, we, we've only got six or seven listeners. You do realize that.
1: Don't you? <laughs> um, so um, <laughs> you'll be you'll be you'll be
2: all right. You'll, you'll be all yes.
0: right. <laughs>
1: Um how many did you tell him we had about 50,000? Uh, yeah. I <laughs> uh, no joking. I
0: seriously don't, don't don't care. I thought uh, you was a nice guy and uh i think you're smart so uh this is nice. this. very good yeah. but
1: um, so just to dwell on that point uh, a little bit more um if we sort of take bitcoin and crypto out mm. of the equation um yep. do you see anything uh, is there is there a storm on the horizon um is there anything that perhaps happened as a result of 2008 2009 and i'm in particular i'm leading the, the witness here but i'm kind of thinking in, in my mind i'm looking at all the money the quantitative easing that was pumped into the economy to shore banks up yep. um and effect the effect of sort of Possibly devaluing the um, the currencies that we've got is it is that now starting to come back round and and ten years on are we are we, are we possibly facing the um, uh, the challenges that 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 short term fix has um, has led us to or is it actually going to be fine? Yeah, look,
0: we're, we're going to have a recession again. That's mm. easy. It's a, that's a that's a cop out, for Of course we are. Right? We're going to have a recession yeah. again. Um, look, I, I'm not an economist. Um, uh, although you know the people I trust and the people I read are kind of galvanizing around a 2020, 2022, you know, there are big presumptions in that that's a presumption that trade war with China continues, which um, it's very likely we're going to have the same uh, president in place that we, that we will in, uh, in, in three years. So it's likely that trade war will continue. Um, so I think, you know, I think um, we're not in a place yet where I think um, it's like predicting weather, right? You know, we're really good a week out. We're really, really bad beyond that. Um, I think even the economists who are making these predictions will, will, will appreciate that. Um, but we're starting to see the signs. Um, so I think you know betting, betting that will last much longer than 2022, I think, is increasingly becoming a fool's bet. So it's going to happen. Now, I, I don't think it's going to be this um, uh, apocalyptic, um, you know, central bank destroying type recession. I think it'll be uh, it'll be severe, and it'll be it'll be severe in a different way. The last one was severe. Um, And there's no way to predict what that means. But um, it'll be hard and brutal and awful. um, And it'll incrementally validate things like digital assets and non-central bank link currencies. Um, I I think people who are hoping we're going to be spearing each other with pitchforks in a Mad Max type scenario and suddenly everybody will be using Bitcoin for everything. I always wonder about that theory. It's the same. The the, the people who buy gold have the Mm -hmm. same theory the world's going to go into civil chaos and i'll have my gold and i'm always if you really believe that shouldn't you be buying barbed wire and guns because if i have a gun and you have gold i have your gold so the people who believe bitcoins is post-apocalyptic uh utopian currency i'm like
1: so the servers
0: are run we'll have electricity we'll have mobile phones in, in this in this like fantasy world so um, yeah but we didn't I think don't.
1: about that so you know you're taking the question <laughs> we're gonna, in we're gonna
0: the wrong <laughs> we're, we're gonna have a big recession it's gonna be ugly it's gonna be ugly in ways we can't imagine yeah. it's gonna marginally increase um, you know uh, uh, adherence and belief um, in a in a, an irrational approach to script not not this sort of like um, you know, not this displacement of central banks, displacement of fiat currency, um, but, a, but a rational approach towards digital currency and non-centralized currency and stores of value as, as something that fits into the mosaic of a reasonable investment portfolio. So I think, yes, I think every every um, if we if, if there isn't some cataclysmic event in digital assets that causes massive distrust and makes it all go away or and not go away, but kind of makes it go back to the dark the dark web type denizens. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I see no reason why it wouldn't, it wouldn't be strengthened by the next recession, uh, which is why, again, I believe it's going to, I tell, I tell Neriel, you know, um, you got to understand cryptocurrency is like social media, like everyone over 35 hates it, but it's not going anywhere. Like it, it's, it's, and, and, and I think like, like social media, and I know lots of millennials who are like getting off of social media. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll normalize to its correct place within society. Um, and that sounds very patronizing because uh, there are people who believe it's going to take over society. I just I just don't believe that it will find a place in society, a valuable functioning place. Um, it's and I don't think it's going to be as a displacement for the dollar, um, mm-hmm. but it's going to be here. It's going gonna, it's gonna to play a role.
1: So, uh, w- yeah, it's been great having you on. So that's to sort of uh, to move us to uh, to a close then. Um, mm-hmm. It wouldn't be an episode of Crypto and Grill if we didn't ask you, John. Um, yeah. So I've got a thought experiment for you here. Everyone's around at your house, all of the crypto uh, Bitcoin maximalists and uh, <laughs> everyone's everyone's come. You, you're, throwing, you're throwing a garden party. <laughs> what, are you, what are you putting on the grill for them? How are you going to take care of these uh, carnivores?
0: Well, this is so embarrassing. Um, I have the palate of a 10 of year old, my five year old daughter. So um, I'm a, I'm a, I love to cook but I, I, I hate every, the taste of everything. So I cook like, you have Alton Brown over there. He's um, amazing, uh, sort of like a scientific chef. So literally all I would cook them is awful. Um, really high quality hanger steak um, on a very hot, well-oiled grill, um, finished in the oven to medium rare with cracked sea salt. That's it. Bland. I actually like the taste of the meat. I hate <laughs> sauce. Just meat. I want just meat. Um, <laughs>
1: You sound, and, like, you, know, you sound like you sound like a Bitcoin carnivore. You sound like a maximalist in the making. I think we just need to work harder on you. It's
0: so <laughs> I hate every. Yeah, no, they'd be so bored that they'd all get in their Lambos and uh, and tear <laughs> out
1: of there. <laughs> Excellent. So look, um, it's been great having you on. And just uh, one final question before we finish: What's hmm. uh, what's next for you? Uh, what are the ne- What does the next six to twelve months look like?
0: Um, so I got I got a really cool I'm starting to get really cool invitations from uh, global regulators to go and consult with them on um, on trying to figure out rational sane uh, regulation around cryptocurrency. And again I think I think they're calling me because of my background at the exchange, um, and also I think they want people who are not to beat this around, but who are cynical enthusiasts, right? You don't want somebody coming in saying shut the whole thing down. You don't want someone coming in saying it should be 99% of a retail investor's portfolio. So, um, so I think um, my name is starting to get passed around. These regulators, I was in Malaysia um, a few months ago doing that work. I'll be heading out um, to the Middle East uh, next month. And that's where I want to focus my attention is trying to be a, um, a a reasonable person in the room. Uh, My relationship with MIT is really helpful there because I I can bring unbiased academics because every a lot of the technical talent is locked into industry and they've drunk the kool-aid and you know they, they're they're they're, it's, they're they're great smart people they're, their passion is in the right place they're genuine i'm not saying they're disingenuous at all but they, they're talking their own book and, mm-hmm. and you can't regulators can't have that they need people who can say um you know i look i'm technically i technically make money being on the boards of these of these funds but i represent the investor so my responsibility is to protect is to protect them. So they need people who are who are balanced, who aren't, whose whose life isn't tied to the token valuation of the latest ICO. Um, they need those people too, but they got to balance them with with cynics and with cynical enthusiasts. So that's that's kind of where I want to focus my time.
1: Perfect. Sounds awesome. Excellent. Uh, this is really,
0: thank you so much.
1: This has this been fantastic. Um, so yeah. uh, I've been Crypto Dantes. We've had John D'Agostino with us here. I've had. Stig of the pump uh, dragged him through this as per usual. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance.
0: (laughs) Take care, guys. All the best.